0: You shouldn't put salt on your food, right? That's what we've been told for years and years from medical doctors and just everyday individuals alike. We say salt's bad, it'll bloat us. It's not good for us. It'll cause medical problems. But have we been wrong for all of these years? Today, I have the godfather of salt. Not quite sure that's his actual nickname, but I just gave it to you, James. Dr. James D. Nicolantonio. He's the author of The Salt Fix, where he's really breaking the common thought of why we actually need sodium and chloride in our bodies to help fuel our bodies. He's also the author of The Longevity Solution, The Immunity Fix, and The Mineral Fix. In this episode, we talk about how you can use salt to improve performance, extend performance, recovery, how you can use sauna to recover better, how you can dehydrate yourself to help hydrate yourself when you're running, how to sweat more, evaporate more so your body cools down much faster. Saunas, red light therapy, what minerals you need. So much in this episode. I truly appreciate Dr. James for coming on, and I appreciate you for listening to the podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already subscribed. Fatter Future Podcast, make sure you follow me on Instagram at Joey Thurman Fit and all social media channels. Leave a review for the podcast, share with your friends, and I truly appreciate all of you. And remember don't be a fatty, F A D D Y, be a part of the future. Here's my conversation with Dr. James. Salt, do we need it? Minerals, super fuel, all sorts of stuff. I got Dr. James D. Nicolantonio in front of me. And man, he's he also has a, a brand new puppy dog. So, as much as people love, love puppies, we're not going to sit and talk about that. But, doc you, you are you are all over the place as I was just saying on the pre-interview you're, you're the author of multiple books including the the salt fix the immunity fix lo, longevity solution I mean, you've got, you've got a, a bunch of books and they're all very tangible information and things that are kind of flying in the face of what we normally hear uh, in, the, in the in the health industry and I just want to say thank you for coming on I appreciate it
1: yeah thanks for having me excited to be here
0: all right, so what what do you do in a day like you're you, you were a pharmacist and you're a researcher and now just writing 700 page books all, all, all the time. What, what do you specifically do?
1: Yeah, so most of my research is around nutrients, um, supplements, like basically, and then I've been doing a lot on how to improve athletic performance. So... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I specify in cardiovascular health, um, preventive, particularly preventive, uh, cardiovascular um, nutrition.
0: No, okay, cool. So, I mean, why did you want to get into this? I mean, you you have got got a background in in pharmacy. So, did why start getting into this and, and kind of you know, tackling uh, big topics that uh, essentially people uh, we thought for years we were taking them as fact because they came straight out of our you know medical doctor's mouths. So, well, you know. Why, why start going into this?
1: Who was a, So it was a combination of both being a, a wrestler and a cross country runner in high school, and mm-hmm. then seeing my patients put on low salt diets as when I was a community pharmacist, how they were, their health was suffering. So like me as an athlete, I, I inherently knew salt wasn't like a dietary demon. Mm-hmm. Um, but like all the guidelines have always said, consume a low salt diet. So then I decided to actually like look into the data and the studies on that. And that ended up turning into the salt fix um so really a lot of times when you look at these recommendations any type of dietary recommendation they all really stem from the 1977 dietary goals which then became the 1980 dietary guidelines and so if you if you think about that that time 40 years ago there were no systematic reviews and meta-analyses there was no Cochrane database for you know summarizing the clinical studies to come up with an actual Evidence-based recommendation. It was all right. literally just based on expert consensus, and so mo- that's why most of the dietary like advice that we're given can be basically picked apart. Mm. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, the, it's it's really interesting because for the the longest time, and I, I was you know playing hockey through college, and my diet wasn't great. It was literally uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, family-sized popcorn, and then I would go. Uh, oh, I would get the mashed potatoes, the family-sized mashed potatoes, and then I would go and get uh, Dairy Queen brownie earthquakes, two of them, at once, and I would do that two or three times a day because I had I was hitting six thousand calories a day. I was two hundred forty pounds. I was way too big on the ice. I was breaking the steel and stuff. And uh, I mean, I think that the amount of sodium that I was probably intaking just from that. But obviously, like, besides the process part and all that sort of st- stuff, I, I know I shouldn't have been eating that, but I feel like I should have been this big bloated mess, but I was working out, I was on the ice a couple hours a day, and then I was working out, and I actually felt relatively good. I know it would have felt a lot better if I ate a lot cleaner than that. I'm not recommending that diet by any means, it was horrible. Um, but like, yeah, my, my body was feeling good, so I, I just think that a lot of people, uh, do demonize salt and and why are we still doing this even now you've got all of this research out uh and and people like you know that even even my you know father-in-law he's been told it's like oh you got got to watch that sodium intake and you gotta you know do that like how about taking some electrolytes or whatever or you you, you, you're having sweat in the summer like man like some electrolytes are happening he's like no i can't my doctor doesn't recommend that so why is it so hard for us to believe that we actually need salt and when when you say salt what are you referring to specifically
1: yeah when we're so when you and i are talking about salt we're talking about sodium and chloride combined um so salt is made up of two essential minerals and you you already hit the nail on the head for why most people demonize salt and that's because their doctor demonizes salt Mm -hmm. and that's because Doctors typically only get four hours of nutrition education during their entire training. And once they are done with their training in medical school, they typically just get most of their CE from like pharmaceutical companies. So they don't really just, they don't typically delve into nutrition unless that's something that they're interested in. So that's why most people think salt is so bad for them because as soon as you go into the doctor's office, they instantly tell you to watch your salt intake, you know, and they don't talk about the nuances like, well, if you sweat or if you exercise, or if you drink a lot of coffee, you actually need a lot of salt. They don't even, they don't even mention that it's, it's an essential mineral. And if you don't get enough of it, that can lead to death. So, you know, there's a balance with everything just, and because it's an essential mineral, there's, there's always going to be this bell curve where you, you know, you know, don't get enough and that can be detrimental. There's an optimal intake and then there is too much. And so there has to be that range that doctors discuss, but they never do. Yeah. Uh,
0: So what's going to hold up with the medical community? Why why aren't they being taught this? Because they're relying on information from a pharmacist. And that's kind of scary right there. Uh, Like the pharmacology has done a lot for us, you know, not, not saying that. But at the same time, if you're just relying on something from a company not you know, scientifically um, backed research, like, why isn't it changing? Why are, are doctors learning more about nutrition or even lifestyle factors? You go in ahead. a 15-minute checkup for your doctor and they've got to see 20, 30, 40 patients a day. You know, what's the holdup?
1: Part of it is due to reimbursement. Like doctors have to hit certain marks. Like they got to get the patient's LDL down to a certain number. They got to get the blood pressure down to a certain number. They have to, you know, get the A1C down to a certain number, or they don't get reimbursed and they can lose money. So they're just focused on surrogate markers, right? Just restrict salt as much as possible to try to just reduce plasma volume and dehydrate the person so their blood pressure artificially looks good, right? That's like the goal. It's not like, well, what's the root cause of the high blood pressure? such as, right, poor diet, lack of exercise, things like that. So they don't really, they're not taught to look for really the root causes when it comes to diet, lifestyle, nutrition.
0: Mm. So what do you say artificially looks good?
1: Yes. Right. So like, basically, when you tell someone to go on a low salt diet, what you're essentially doing is you are just dropping their plasma volume. Okay. And so I can lower your blood pressure by just telling you to drink one cup of water per day. Essentially, that's what you're doing. You're just restricting someone's intake of fluids because salt leads to more fluid intake on its own. And so you're artif- when I say you're artificially lowering the blood pressure, you're not getting at the root cause. You're just volume depleting and dehydrating someone. And that's not what you want to do. That's a terrible way to lower blood pressure. Okay. Yeah,
0: because is often even you know with with my father-in-law and he i'm like we we need to make sure that we're, we're watching the the processed foods and they're greek and greeks are not even adding salt to foods or, or anything like that and you know I, I've, I've even brought up like doctors they're not trained in nutrition they're not trained in exercise physiology there's some mds that are brilliant in all of that sort of stuff but to your point that's because they they went back or you got a functional medicine doctor or something they went back and did more schooling and got their CSCS or you know, whatever it is, uh, as far as all of that's concerned. So what are the things that um, people need to be, you know, staying away from um, in regards to salt? Are some people more salt sensitive? Or is it just maybe the excess processed foods that are just loaded with you know, not uh, more than just ex- excess sodium, but uh, refined carbs and sugars and, and all that sort of stuff? I mean, some, can some people be a little bit more salt sensitive, if you will?
1: Yep. So um, the three main causes of salt sensitivity, and I cover this in the the salt fix and the mineral fix, is uh, insulin resistance. So you're eating too many refined carbs and sugar, which drives up insulin and causes you to over retain salt. So if you drop the refined carbs and sugar, you drop the insulin levels and you can pee out salt normally. The second common cause is potassium deficiency and then magnesium deficiency. If you fix those three underlying factors, you're basically going to fix 99% of people who are quote unquote salt sensitive.
0: Okay, so what do you feel like the the biggest foods, uh, causes and, and issues of, of those three are like the ones that people are doing like sodas, cakes, sweets, I mean, you know, sometimes even people here. And this may sound like an elementary question, but some people here refined um, uh, (laughs) sugars, refined—I was thinking cookies, uh, refined sugars, uh, and
1: carbs—and they don't exactly know what that is or what to stay away from. Right, that's a good—that's a good point. So, if we're talking about like the obesity epidemic, it's it's primarily being driven by the combination of refined carbohydrates and added fats. So, when Mm -hmm. you combine both, the body typically doesn't metabolize both nutrients at the same time very well. And that leads to a tremendous amount of fat storage. We're talking about refined carbohydrates. Even most whole grains are actually highly refined because prior to the late 1800s, you had grains just stone ground or hand pounded, but then they invented the steel roller mill, which basically pulverized the grain into such a fine powder that it dramatically increases blood glucose spikes and then actually can lead to hypoglycemic events. So they've, they've done comparison studies where you'll look at like a whole grain ran through a steel roller mill versus a stone ground grain. And the steel roller mill grains cause those huge spikes in glucose and then actually you go hypoglycemic versus a steel roller mill, you have a more smooth increase and then you never go low. So it's how the, the, the grains are refined which you know defines them as refined but you're never going to know if a grain in the united states is ran through a steel roller mill or stone ground unless it specifically says stone ground so typically um if i'm the only grain i typically usually eat in regards to um like bread would be ezekiel bread because it's just sprouted yep. there's no flour anytime you see the word flour think of refined grain mm-hmm. uh, so avoid all flowers typically is the good way to go
0: Okay, I I remember years ago, um, before like gluten was even a word in, in people's everyday language, um, my wife went to a chiropractor, functional medicine doctor, and she wasn't feeling well. And he he did some testing on her, and he's like, you need to stay away mm-hmm. from gluten. I'm like, well, what is this gluten thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so and then he had re- recommended Ezekiel bread. So that's like if you if you start doing that, so that's that. when I first heard about it. This must have been twelve or thirteen years. Uh, So when we're talking about that, and you you even just made a post uh, the other day about, you know, they lied about tobacco, sugar, cholesterol, asbestos, mercury, Vioxx, fluoride, aspartame, and glyphosate. So um, is also that part of the issue uh, with uh, pesticides and everything that's going on our crops?
1: That's definitely a potential issue for sure, um, which is why I only buy organic Mm grains, which is eco bread is organic. So that is an important factor, too. We don't really know, right? It's hard to tease all these things out, but prior to the use of glyphosate, people weren't so gluten intolerant and celiac disease wasn't extremely prevalent. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's necessarily the gluten, which is coming from a whole food. If you think about it, gluten's been around forever and people have been consuming um, foods that contain gluten because Ezekiel bread actually does contain gluten. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you consume gluten in a refined form, without the vitamins and minerals, that's different than when you consume gluten as a whole food with the vitamin E and all these other nutrients. They've even done studies where if you give like animals isolated gluten without vitamin E, it's much more damaging. And the vitamin E is basically stripped from a grain when you refine it. So it's very nuanced. Mm.
0: Okay, because I remember when I go to Greece, uh i'll have and i don't generally have pizza or or anything here i'll have uh, just a massive pizza and and, you know they've got some sort of greek cheese on it and usually it's a gouda Mm, it's a gouda i can't i can't say gouda without without smiling uh but gouda cheese and I'll, i'll order a pizza to myself and the Greek uh, waiter, or waitress will look at me like, you know, that's for a family size. I'm can't like, yeah, bring it to me. And I'll have that. And I'll have a crepe with ice cream. And I normally don't do a lot of dairy and all this sort of stuff. And I just load it on it. And I'll have that. And I feel amazing an hour or two later. I get up the next day. I can go for the same thing here. I would feel like a bloated mess and I, I'd be. Shit, my pants on or off the toilet, depending on if I made it on time. I told you this was going to be a normal podcast. Um, so, like, it's interesting that going to other countries, I mean, maybe where we're going in Greece, it's um, a more smaller village, if you will. And I think a lot of that is being made by um, hand. So, I mean, yeah. right. it could potentially just be, you know, the, the way it's processed. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Have you ever gone to a, a different country and had something that you, you haven't had? Uh, that you wouldn't have here over there and felt differently?
1: So I haven't, I have not gone to like Italy or France, but I've talked to a lot of people who have, and they say uh-huh. the exact same thing as what you're saying. Like the the bread there or the pizza there, or the pasta there yeah. doesn't upset their stomach. Um, so whatever we're doing over here is clearly detrimental versus what they're doing in Europe and the Mediterranean. Yeah, we're screwing shit up. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> That's fine.
0: What's your favorite
1: salty food? I, I, I want to ask this question my favorite salty food. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I mean, I do love olives. Um, yeah. but you know, most of those foods actually don't naturally contain a ton of salt, right? Mm. Like that's why like when you start eating healthy, the, the amount of salt in the actual diet is is pretty low. So like really most of my salt comes from adding it back either mm. from like organic like soy sauces or natural real salts. Um because again, the real food we're not we're not consuming the whole animal anymore. Like yeah. people think, like oh, let's just eat nose to tail. We're not eating nose to tail. We're not drinking the salty blood anymore. Our faces aren't covered with salty blood. We're getting just like this dry piece of meat at the supermarket. So it's not the same. So you have to add the salt back. And so that's really you know where most of my salt comes from.
0: Okay, that that's a that's a very valid point. I started. Uh salting my food and actually taking salt, ta- or, you know, uh, salt tablets before working out. Um, I did a podcast with, uh, Stan Efferding, who did the vertical diet and IFBB pro. And he recommended as part of that, uh, I did his workout program for like four weeks, um, before doing the podcast. And I would take like 500 milligrams or something, um, of salt tablets before and post-workout. And i tell you what, I, that's some of the best I've ever felt. And now Uh, pre-workout, I'll do a black coffee and I'll add, you know, maybe like a teaspoon um, of salt straight into that. So why is that making me feel so much better as opposed to almost any other pre-workout that I've taken in my life?
1: So the the problem with um, exercise performance is particularly vigorous exercise performance is you have a drop in blood volume of about eight to 10% within just five to 15 minutes, depending on how vigorous you're going. So if you're, if you're going pretty much all out, your blood volume is going to drop tremendously in about just a three minutes. Okay. Because blood is being pushed towards working muscle. So now the blood feeding the heart is down. So if you can boost blood volume prior to exercise, then you're going to get ahead of the main problem that inhibits vigorous exercise performance and again that's that plasma volume depletion mm-hmm. because the blood is flowing to working muscle and now your heart isn't getting enough blood flow and basically the cardiac output goes down so salt solutions if you consume these salt solutions typically they got to be about as salty as blood so that's about 200 milligrams of sodium per liter you start consuming those about an hour and a half prior to performance and you slowly consume them over 30 to 60 minutes. And then that slowly, that slow infusion of salt and water dramatically boosts blood volume. And so now you can cool your, your body off better because you have better blood flow. And how we dissipate heat is pushing blood to the skin. So mm-hmm. as you start working out longer and longer, your core body temperature starts going up and up. And now blood isn't just being pushed to a working muscle, it's got to go to heat. Pay- So now you have blood being basically shunted to two different places, and the heart's like, what the heck, all my blood volume is down now. And that dramatically increases oxygen demand on the heart, heart rate goes up, and if you don't have enough blood volume in water to cool the body off, um, the increase in core body temperature dramatically rises. So the clinical studies that give salt preloads with water have shown... In the heat, if you vigorously exercise, you can go over 20 minutes longer. So people who are vigorously exercising on a, like a treadmill or or cycling, they typically stop at about 40 minutes. But if you give them a salt solution, they can go over 60 minutes. So that's tremendously uh, beneficial. And if you look at any other pre-supplement like beta alanine or beetroot juice, That only gives you about one minute longer of exercise. We're talking about 20 minutes longer with salt and water. So it's the best pre-workout you could ever do, and that's the reason why.
0: Okay, so what would that look like? Uh, As you said, 3,200 milligrams in in water and doing it slowly obviously makes a lot of sense for uh, absorption and and not to get a a large spike there. So is that a tablespoon, a couple tablespoons if somebody was to just eat your average salt?
1: So that's about a teaspoon and a half. Okay. In about in about a liter of fluid. Okay. You know? And then
0: during the workout, uh, is it beneficial to have a little bit of salt in, in your water or whatever beverage
1: you're having during the workout as well? So if we're talking about like acutely boosting performance, mm-hmm. then doing the preload prior is the way to go. Because when you vigorously exercise, gastric emptying is reduced. So you don't really want to consume a lot of fluid during vigorous exercise because it'll sit in the stomach, you'll bloat and it can reduce performance. Okay. So it, it's about really getting the salt and the water into the blood prior. So it's not sitting in the stomach, right? But if you're talking about not acutely boosting performance, like if you're training for something down the road, what's the best way to improve performance? That's actually becoming dehydrated, acclimated because mm-hmm. the adaptations to dehydration dramatically improve performance later on. So how do you become dehydrated acclimated? You just drink to thirst. So whenever you're thirsty, you take a, like a, like a sip of water and that's about it because your thirst signals keep you actually dehydrated during exercise because you typically only consume 25 to 50% of the water that you lose when you're exercising. Your thirst isn't that great, yeah. but that's good in the long run because mm-hmm as you dehydrate you become acclimated to it just very very similarly to why when you exercise multiple times right you become stronger and better afterwards right so i tell people when they're training just drink when you're thirsty if your if your mouth is dry just drink a little bit of water just a couple sips and then keep going um, and then you over the the weeks How your body fights that dehydration is it will slowly boost baseline blood volume. Your blood volume actually gets bigger by doing that because it's fighting the dehydration. That's how your body adapts to, um, the dehydration. So the, then you certainly want to rehydrate afterwards. So you come into training fully hydrated, you mildly dehydrate, which is a drop in weight of about one and a half to two and a half percent. So you weigh yourself before training and then after training, Yeah. and then you simply, rehydrate with a salt solution that is as salty as sweat which is typically about a half a teaspoon of salt per liter of fluid loss and so and then before performance if you're not doing a salt preload with water like before an event or before competition you're you're going to be at a dramatically reduced um advantage so you always want to do the salt preloads when you have definitely competition day or if you have low energy or if you're going to have a really grueling training session, you should probably do a salt preload. But besides that, it's dehydration acclimation all the way.
0: Okay. I'm, I'm wondering if some people when they carb load, right? If when they're carb loading, if part of that meal, just being salty anyways, is part of why they have their performance benefits, right? Because a, a lot of times when these, when these athletes are, are, are doing this a couple of hours before, like, and that, you know, we've looked at the anabolic window and then the amino acids are still available, you know, even if you're having pre or post, doesn't seem to necessarily matter unless you're like maybe a high level athlete. But um, I, I wonder if there's something with that, if, you know, it's, it's,
1: it's the sodium and not necessarily, you know, the, the carbohydrates. It could it could very well be if if the the carb loading is bringing salt, and it's bringing a fairly decent amount of salt, then it could be. Yeah. But we do we do know that particularly for vigorous exercise, right? That um, reducing the loss of muscle glycogen and replenishing that is going to improve performance. Mm-hmm. So basically, there's these um, sort of high molecular weight starches like Vitargo or Glycofuse, mm-hmm. which are much better than things like maltodextrin or dextrose or your random sugars, um, because they actually do absorb faster, they reduce bloating and they've been basically put head to head against other types of carb sources. And they seem to be, um, they do improve performance and reduce muscle gly- uh, glycogen loss and recovery better. Um, but if I were to do just like a simple carb load, I would just do like maple syrup or orange juice. Um, yeah, like 30, 45 minutes prior to training.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Now, now what about, um, you, you touched on, you know, the core temperature and body temperature going up. Um, and I know you've done some stuff on, uh, on cooling your body, d- uh, during and like Palmer cooling. I know there's some of the research, um, out there about that. Um, and Dr. Andrew Huberman, who I had on the podcast too, and I know he, he has talked as well Uh, but have you looked into that a little bit more how to to cool the body down to um, increase performance you know during and and, you know also recovery as well post
1: yeah one of the probably one of the best ways to actually do this is to actually um, become heat acclimated so you're like wait a second going into the sauna is going to make me colder it does so the body adapts to heat by slowly reducing core body temperature at baseline so becoming heat acclimated in the sauna is actually one way to pre-cool the body prior to performance, because after two weeks, your baseline core body temperature is dramatically reduced. So now you can soak in more heat before you at your baseline, before your core body temperature increases to a critical core temperature. Um, so, and not only that, but there's been studies that have shown if you are mildly dehydrated and then you go into the sauna and you do that multiple times, that dramatically improves performance um, later on, because again, you are, you are adapting to the heat, you're becoming cooler at baseline. You're getting all these benefits too, with heat acclimation. This is really cool. You stop, you stop losing as many electrolytes in sweat When you become heat acclimated, that's one of the adaptations, like let's stop losing so much salt and magnesium in this. And when you have a more dilute sweat, it evaporates faster. So you literally are a better cooling off machine when you are heat acclimated by going into the sauna for about two weeks every single day. Um, And your sweat rate is much higher and the threshold for inducing sweat is actually much lower. You start sweating much faster um, and it evaporates so much quicker you're and you're such a better you're like this ac machine now like you like just cool off so much better yeah. when you're acclimated so that's one way we can get into palmer cooling yes i've done a lot of research on that right. but i thought that's something that i've never heard of anyone really talk about
0: yeah so basically if people start going into a sauna it increases their uh, their you know a propensity to sweat more but it yeah. cools off faster and they're sweating faster because i i know me um i do a lot of like not a lot like of these things are working out and they'll hook me up to like a heart rate monitor and say it's one of the ones that i'm trying to get to my whatever zone i'm not going to name a color you can fig- figure out which brand that is um but they're trying to get me at that certain level and it drives me crazy I'm, I'm trying to get my heart rate up and obviously the more shape you're in the, the harder it's going to be to get that to that level but i'm also not sweating as fast and that's why part of the reason why i like working out in the summer in the uh in the Chicago heat as well. One, mainly just to get a tan. I, I don't really like cardio that much. So I just take my shirt off and get a tan. And two, I start sweating faster. And I like being able to sweat. So you're saying if I was to start going into a, a sauna for a couple weeks, is there a, is there a certain protocol or amount of time, or does it matter if it's a, a dry sauna or like, um, or, or a, a red light, um, sauna, does it matter?
1: Yeah, so the um, there are protocols and as you become acclimated, you sort of have to go in for a longer period of time or go mm-hmm. in at a higher temperature to maintain the acclimation. Otherwise, you start losing some of the benefits, right? That makes mm-hmm. sense your body's adapting to this. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to figure out a way to like prevent my core body temperature from continually going up. So... There are ways to, you can, you can monitor and make sure you're hitting a certain heart rate. Typically the studies aim for about 140 beats per minute. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to hit that or maintaining a certain core body temperature, but essentially, you know, going in, into the sauna. Yes. Infrared, you don't need as high of heat in traditional saunas you do. So if it's a, if it's an infrared sauna, typically 140 to 160 Fahrenheit for about 20 to 30 minutes, you obviously start slow and slowly work your way up because you don't want to be passing out. And then for traditional sh- saunas, you typically go in at about 170 to 200 for about 20 to 30 minutes. And that's usually the range that you need um, for those two weeks. And again, you'll have to increase it by a couple minutes mm-hmm. as you move on to the week, first week, and then the second week and you maintain those benefits for about two weeks after. So you can stop, right? Because you don't want to be constantly blasting yourself with sauna before competition. So you can stop about two weeks prior to competition. As long as you are physically active, you will maintain most of those benefits.
0: Well, and then that two week gap, uh, you know, or I guess sauna deload, if you will, then is that the point where you need to go back? And then after that two weeks, are you acclimated to the point you know where you were before you took the time off, or is it kind of like going back to day one?
1: So we don't have, I've never seen any clinical studies that have tested what you've just asked, but yeah. it would make sense that after the two weeks, you've basically gone back to what you've been at if you had a two week gap. Because you, you do maintain it, but then after two weeks, the adaptations start to drop pretty dramatically. So you would need to go back in to, to regain those heat acclimation benefits, but you lose a ton of minerals through sweat. Mm -hmm. So during those two weeks, you are going to be losing things like salt, copper, selenium, iodine, um, chromium, particularly too. And so athletes can get themselves into trouble if they constantly sweat, but aren't heat acclimated because Mm -hmm. you got to go almost every single day for About one to two weeks to really become acclimated but if you're just going like once every two days or three days you're constantly losing a ton of these minerals and if you don't ever replace them back it can lead to weak bones hypothyroidism weight gain insulin resistance you know people are breaking their legs and stuff and it's like what the heck's going on here well are you replacing all the minerals that you're sweating out because if you're a high intensity athlete and you know you're you're sweating out all these minerals you know, you can, you can potentially cause some damage to your bones. And so mm-hmm. in the mineral fix, I do have a table of what minerals are lost in the exact amounts for every hour of exercise through sweat, um, because it's a huge issue that I think a lot of athletes don't realize is occurring.
0: Yeah. I want to, I, I want to talk uh, about that, but I think that's uh, maybe why um, uh, Connor McGregor broke his uh, tibia. Did you see that? <laughs> Well, I did see that there could, I mean, there's potentially, Masty, a ton of- by the way, if, if you, if you haven't seen that yeah. dude steps back and it was probably messed up beforehand and then that
1: thing just folds over. Yeah. Well, when you, well, that's the thing, when you have athletes who are doing high impact to their bones, right? You got to really make sure minerals, collagen, vitamins are just completely optimized. And, yeah. and you know, most of these athletes probably aren't. And it's, it's really important. Um, you know, for a regular person, you don't need to have like Wolverine type bones, right? Your bones don't need to be adamantium. Um, yeah, you're not, for... you're not kicking a tree or somebody trying to, you know, chop your head off. for, for going to Exactly. The tree. Right. But when you're constantly kicking someone in micro fracturing, right. And then you, and then you hit bone on bone, you got to have some really strong bones or, or you're going to break them. And so, yeah, definitely any type of nutrient dif- depletion could potentially lead to weak bones and then those types of injuries.
0: Okay. So, uh, I mean, and you, you said that, you know, you're, you're an athlete and wrestler and obviously a part of that is uh, a dehydration protocol. And I know when I competed in fitness events and bodybuilders, well, you know, they'll sit in saunas, they'll, they'll do um, sometimes I've, I've done sodium loads, sodium depletion, water loads, water, water depletion. I, I sat in a sauna one time for an hour and a half to see how much weight I lost. It was like eight pounds. Yeah. but Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, you experience that, you know, all the time wrestling, uh, you know, so what, what are your thoughts on, on, on people doing that? If, you know, we've got some high level athletes that are trying to cut weight, what is your, um, safest way to do that? As far as, you know, uh, what you used to do and what, you know, what you would recommend now?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you go, severe dehydration is considered usually at about 5% body weight loss. So if you mm-hmm. are losing uh, 5% or more of your body weight through fluid loss, that's severe dehydration, you really you don't want to do that, you know, you shouldn't have to do that type of dehydration to get down to the weight that you want to let's say compete at, right?
0: So on a lot I'm of 200, I'm 200 pounds, so i would be like, like dropping 10 pounds of yeah, just yeah. straight fluid.
1: Okay, yeah, if you drop 10 pounds, that's considered severe dehydration. And, okay. and you definitely you don't want to you want to be less than that, so to speak um so what's the best way to sort of lose weight would be probably a protein sparing modified fast hmm. because that way you're not losing muscle um, but you can dramatically cut the total amount of calories consumed and so a lot this this is like a huge key advantage that i think a lot of athletes are forgetting they just try to f- straight up fast and they're mm-hmm. going to lose a ton of muscle by doing that. So by adding like 20 or 30 grams of protein two or three times a day, and that's it. Um, if you really need to get the calories yeah. down, but not lose muscle mass, protein sparing very modified fast is the way to go.
0: Okay, so that would be you know having sixty to ninety grams uh, of protein if somebody was, and obviously everybody listening, like this, this is we're talking about athletes and dropping down. Right. I don't, I don't exactly. necessarily do this. Um, but so that's sixty to ninety grams for a, a week or two in, until they hit their and their body
1: weight. Right, exactly, and you, and you keep the carb intake, you know, virtually, you know, very low or non-existent, so to speak.
0: Okay, yeah. uh, and then when they want to reload, like say after competition, is, is there a best way to, um, you know, especially make sure? Well, one, get I want to get into the minerals too. Uh, make sure that they're going to rehydrate properly. Is uh, I think a lot of athletes are you know going straight to you know a pancake house or something afterwards. Is there a proper way to do that?
1: Yeah, there cert- there certainly is a proper way to do that because, okay, so if, if you're doing a protein sparing modified fast and you're not consuming carbs you're going to probably lose an extra 500 milligrams of sodium, um, every single day for one to two weeks. And so that adds up. So let's say you're at like a five gram sodium deficit. You need to just, you need to get back those five grams just to get back to baseline what your body has lost, so to speak from that. So you, so you definitely need to target salt and fluid slowly, slowly consuming that not just crushing salt and water quickly. And then, combining carbohydrates and protein for the refuel. Um, You know, fats are not nearly as important as carbs and protein uh, Mm -hmm. upon refuel. And so you can go really high, like you probably want at least 300 grams of carbs for the day that on the low end, probably the ideal if you're sucking weight and then you want to refuel, probably ideally more around the 600 grams of carbohydrates. But there's some evidence that going upwards of a thousand, especially if you've really depleted your glycogen levels, could be optimal.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a, a higher level athlete is going to have a, a, you know, a, a higher threshold to, you know, store right. the, the glycogen. And that makes a lot right. of sense, especially if, if somebody is, you know, doing a fight in their wane in the day before being able to, to load up, trying to make them feel a lot better. So let's uh, any other performance or, you know, fat loss things that you found, I know you're doing a lot more research on, on performance, um, and anything that would be beneficial for people listening?
1: Well, there's, there's two strategies to besides the heat acclimation to cool the body. One is the Palmer cooling, Mm -hmm. um, which has shown that you can, if you do this correctly, basically you're cooling either the palms of your hands. You can cool the bottoms of the feet, or you can cool the face. That's what are considered glabrous skin, which has these special blood vessels to bring in cold very quickly or dissipate heat very quickly. So a lot of athletes, MMA fighters. They like cool off the back of their neck or their chest. That's the worst way to cool the body off.
0: Right, so the, be- the, the towel
1: afterwards after the fight and you got the cut man, just like yeah. they're doing it. It's the wrong spot. It's the wrong spot. They, for, if you're an MMA fighter, you can't cool the palms, but you can cool the forehead, the cheeks, the ears, and the bottoms of the feet with ice packs. Mm-hmm. you only have a minute between rounds. So you, so, you know, the more areas you cool, the additive cooling you get. The benefit of cooling in between or during competition is that you're not stiff, so to speak. But there are a lot of pre-cooling protocols if you do them correctly that have also been shown to get ahead of the problem and dramatically improve performance. So if you don't have, if you're not in a, in a competition where you actually have the ability to cool yourself down during an event, let's say you're a marathon runner or you don't have the ability to stop and start cooling yourself or grab a, an ice pack during an endurance event and like start right. passing it in between your hands. You got to you got to pre-cool then prior to performance, but a lot of people get it wrong. They jump into a cold plunge and that's not what you want to do um, because that shocks the blood vessels constricts them and actually can raise core body temperature and prevent cold from being drawn in. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta go into water that is not very cold and you slowly decrease the temperature. Um, basically, you really want to start at about 84 Fahrenheit, and you slowly decrease it maybe down to 74 to 64. Um, that's, what this, that's what the pre-cooling protocols show, and you submerge yourself in water for typically anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes at those type of temperatures, and the goal is to drop baseline core body temperature by 0.3 degrees Celsius, which is about half a degree Fahrenheit. Once you do that, you've pre-cooled the body, and that's been shown to increase performance.
0: Hmm. How long before uh, a competition? So say it's somebody, you know, running a marathon or an endurance event or a Spartan, something like that. How long yeah. before, uh, should they be doing that?
1: They should know exactly what protocol will get their core body temp down by about a half a degree. So they need to test out what water temperature works best for them. Cause at higher temperatures like 84, if you just keep it at 84 Fahrenheit, it's going to probably take 60 minutes. Um, if you drop it down to 74 or 64, it might only take 30 minutes. Um. So it depends on the water temperature and essentially when you get, you basically want to monitor your core body temp every 10 minutes. So you, mm-hmm. you, you get out of the water for 10 minutes, you wait a couple minutes, check the temperature, and then, it, you know, it'll probably take 20 or 30 minutes. And then once you've dropped it by about half a degree, you've pre-cooled the body. Now we don't know exactly if this is great for, let's say like an MMA fighter, right? Because like you gotta be loose, yeah. right? Like running isn't as, uh, let's say potential damaging or yeah. exactly like, like when you're fighting you're there's a lot of things happening with your ankles and, and hamstrings. you got to be warmed up very well. So in that type of athlete, it might be best to just do like glabrous cooling. That way you're not necessarily, you're cooling your core in, in the organs, but you're not necessarily cooling like your joints that could lead to stiffness and maybe potentially cause issues. Yeah. So the type of event also will determine the precooling method. I would say.
0: Okay, and then somebody that's just lifting weights, they they could do something like the, or the face. Where, uh, yeah. what's was the easiest way? Passing like a something cold in between the palms, in between sets, uh, or or ice cubes. Call it. A, what what have you found to be the most practical? Because I mean, people, especially if they're going back to the gym, they'd be walking around with ice packs, and then they're they're. And it's It's going to be hard for them to do. I'm sure companies are, are working on, you know, ways to get around this, but what's the easiest
1: way. If you're, if you're at home, one of the easiest ways is just to pour, um, cold tap water, um, in a bucket and just put your feet in. And that way you're just chilling for like a minute. Um, if you're at the gym, ice packs on the palms on your forehead and you alternate, and as soon as it gets uncomfortable, that means the skin has become too cold and then you, you go to a different area. But the more areas you cool simultaneously, the better it's going to work. So you could have, you know, your fists on two, uh, two ice packs rather than one or passing it is going to cool you off quicker. Um, and then of course the other strategy for improving performance is uh, inhibiting the acid that is produced in the cell. Um, and so it's called hitting peak alkalosis prior to performance, dramatically improves performance as well. So that's consuming things like bicarbonate or sodium citrate and things like that.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, you, found anything for, for fat loss? Um, uh, I know mean, you're looking at a lot of performance stuff, but is there, there anything that makes sense for people if they're looking to lose fat? Because I mean, when we talk about losing you know, people, losing weight, but I think the terminology should be, we, we want to lose fat, right? Cause like, yes. you can, you can, the scale can go down, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're losing, you know, uh, you know, the tissue that, that you would like to lose
1: or the, you know, the, the white adipose tissue. Yeah. For athletes, the best, uh, way to gain muscle without gaining fat is to increase the protein intake. And so most, uh, muscle protein synthesis is maxed out at about like 1.6 to 2.4 grams per kilogram body weight. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a caloric surplus and you want to gain muscle and not fat you got to get that up to about 3.3 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight so simply just eating a higher protein diet is the best strategy for people who are consuming a caloric surplus who don't want to gain fat at the same time
0: okay cool makes sense uh let's talk about the the mineral fix and it why is that so important to make sure that we're we're having all of our minerals. I mean, you, you touched on it with, with uh, you know, uh, bones potentially, you know, breaking and and, you know, um, uh, fluid balance and all that sort of stuff. But um, it, what is the importance of the minerals in our body?
1: So the minerals, essentially, they orchestrate everything. Um, they're sort of like they, they allow our, if we're like biological computers, they allow our tech to, to run. If we don't have them then enzymes don't work. So a lot of enzymes require minerals as cofactors for then the enzyme to produce a neurotransmitter or produce a protein or strengthen bone. Um, If you want to cross link collagen uh, in the bone and make it strong, like a chain link fence needs copper because copper is important for what's called lysyl oxidase, which is the enzyme that cross links collagen. So yeah, you want you, want to make sure your mineral intake is good for the production of melatonin in the brain requires magnesium, zinc, iron, because the enzymes that take tryptophan all the way through to melatonin, right? And they're in the in-between steps are 5-HTP and serotonin. All those enzymes that are required to do that require minerals and vitamins. So nothing's going to work well. Your your bones are going to be very brittle. Um, Your thyroid function won't work well if you don't have good minerals because to drive iodine into the thyroid gland itself, you need enough sodium, right, to actually drive the iodine in. And then you need selenium to activate Mm -hmm. thyroid hormones. So without getting too much into the weeds, it runs everything. Our micronutrients run everything.
0: All right. So what's the the best way to uh, get our minerals and and micronutrients? I mean, there's different drops and waters or should we get it from foods? Is there different absorption rates based off of uh, what we're having? Or should people just be pouring electrolytes into their water?
1: So I think from a like a 30,000 foot view, Mm -hmm. uh, people should be consuming a fair amount of well raised animal foods for the bioavailability. And and the other reason is, is how we grow our food and soil health has gone down so much that the nutrients in both animal foods and plant foods across the board, but but definitely a lot in plant foods, more than animal foods, has dropped by about 30%. We've lost about 30% of the minerals and vitamins in plant foods uh, over the course of about 80 years. And so we need actually more animal foods now than ever because that's where we get the most bioavailable forms. So someone who's only consuming 10% of their calories or who's vegan, I don't think that's the best diet at all. So at, at the very minimum, I think people should be consuming at least 20% of their calories from animal foods. If you want to be plant-based fine, but probably about 20% is the minimum, uh, for animal foods. And ideally I would say more around the 50 to 70%, uh, of your calories probably should be coming from animal foods if you're an athlete because you need bioavailable protein and the vitamins and minerals and things like that.
0: Okay, and and what are the best sources of that uh, it, organ meats or you know more of the the ancestral meats are going to be the better ones and I'm I'm assuming you say organic like a grass-fed grass-finished um and I'll get my meats from Bill Campo um which, which is great. So no no affiliation with the podcast FYI. But um, yeah. What are the best sources that people can get?
1: Yep. You, uh, like you said, uh, 100% grass fed, uh, pastured, uh, are for, for both, um, let's say muscle meat and eggs. So I typically have about two pastured eggs per day because they provide nutrients, um, that really aren't in meat. You get the vitamin D um, vitamin A folate. So the muscle meat is uh, high in zinc B12 and protein, um, and iron. So typically, like most people probably should be consuming at least 12 ounces of pastured red meat, muscle meat as a base to just hit protein and B12, zinc and iron. And then you you build your diet off around that 12 ounces of pastured red meat, a couple pastured eggs, maybe some Ezekiel bread, like two slices of Ezekiel bread for manganese, magnesium. Then you throw in about a half ounce to one ounce of pastured liver. For the copper the folate the vitamin a and the bioavailability again is so important when we talk plant animal a lot of people think like take spinach for example which i do i think adding something like spinach is also important for potassium and magnesium but the calcium and iron um, bioavailability is really low in spinach because of the oxalates so you got to almost like build your diet around like okay, here's the optimal range of nutrients. And now what's the bioavailability from which source? And you sort of like create this unique um, selection of foods to then hit the optimal amounts of all those nutrients.
0: Okay. So you're building your own your own diet or just kind of what, what you went off of, just of, of yeah. having that red meat and then throwing in some eggs and then everything else there. So you're not saying like yeah. got to be a complete carnivore or anything else like that. It, it's more of just right looking at, at the the nutrients and micronutrients that you're intaking just to optimally make your body and brain run efficiently exactly yeah okay so what about people if they if listening and they are you know if they're vegan uh ways that they can then get that is there a specific like supplements or maybe like take a, like a, a desiccated liver like obviously if you're vegan maybe you not, might not take that um or to to get those minerals that they're going to be
1: lacking in Right. That, that's the question. And I think there's no real way to fully replace animal foods. Like mm-hmm. you can try and hack your way by taking creatine and essential amino acid powders um, and all these other things, but, you, but you're, you're still going to need carnitine and taurine you're not getting. Um, and really active B12, very difficult to get active B12 in plant foods. You can get some in nori, and in some radiated mushrooms mm-hmm. um, but how active bioavailable active it is is still a little questionable so yeah you can supplement your way to sort of try to piecemeal it but it's just never going to be the same if you ask me
0: yeah it mean, seems like a lot a lot of work and, and as part of part of the podcast I've, I've tried almost every single uh diet out there just to see how i would i would feel on it but the ones where i, I have to pop a bunch of pills I'm like oh my god it's just Sounds like a pain in the ass. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's fine. Okay, so now you're pretty outspoken on on social media. Do you get any backlash from you know the medical community about things that 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 you say, or you know what what are people like the opponents, uh, if you will, of you?
1: Um, what are their opinions? Uh, the so the biggest opponents would be the whole um, calorie deficit or calorie counting. Um, People out there, okay. right? And so um, they're sort of like, well, you know, it's just calories, right? Calories is it. You got to be in a caloric deficit to lose weight. It's not true. It depends on your baseline mm-hmm. status and what caused the weight gain. If you've been eating processed junk and you've messed up your hormones and now you're 20 pounds overweight because you're insulin resistant, I can give you 3,000 calories of whole foods. You're in a caloric surplus. You will absolutely lose weight and fat. You're not in a calorie deficit, so it depends, right? Mm-hmm. And so to think that um, it's all about calories is to say that hormones don't control fat storage. Of course, hormones control fat storage. So it's it's not just calories in, calories out. And then what's interesting too is they believe calories in and calories out are independent of each other they're not if you restrict your calorie intake your body isn't going to want to move as much right so it's not independent you can't just tell someone eat less exercise more right because Mm -hmm. your body needs a set amount of calories to function if you restrict it it's automatically going to decrease metabolism decrease heart rate decrease body temperature because it doesn't want to die right so it's it they're dependent on each other and to assume that you can just you know restrict calories to get out of weight loss is just i don't know it's kind of foolish okay uh <laughs> that's that's sometimes when people when they're like
0: looking at different macronutrient like is an apple the same as apple juice you know yeah. is this candy bar the you know, 800 calorie candy bar the same thing as this you know salad with you know steak or whatever on it right like it's it's completely different so it when people are looking to lose weight uh, what are your general recommendation uh, recommendations for them as far as nutrition is concerned because you're right great right to you know a, a bmr a total daily energy expenditure calculator and, and try to figure that out and cut that down and, and you're correct as you have less calories your non-exercise activity thermogenesis is going to drop down and you're just going to move less and, and burn less calories. What are uh, what are your um, you know, options for people when they want to lose their weight?
1: I would say focus on exercising, building muscle and targeting protein, right, and eating healthy foods, because ultimately it's the junk foods that you're consuming that's going to mess up your hormones and going to cause and lead to more fat gain per calorie consumed. So we, we got to stop like demonizing calories like we need calories. They're good like we shouldn't demonize food. We should think of food like I need to eat good quality protein sources, good quality carbs to fuel my workouts and stop thinking about like constantly trying to just be in caloric restriction. Um, get your baseline metabolism up, have a high metabolism and f- eat a lot basically to, to fuel your workouts. Eat, eat a lot
0: I lose weight. <laughs> that that's pretty crazy because uh, I know that even when I've started increasing and I I, I watch, you know I want to I I g I wanna I don't want to so say I'm macro counting, but I, I like seeing, you know, every calorie that goes into my body, whatever specific diet that I'm trying, and then I see what happens when I have two thousand calories versus forty five hundred calories in a day and what happens to my body composition, and I, I'm, I'm slowly bringing it up, I'm not going from like 2000 to 4500, you know, the next day, it, right. it's, a, it's a slow increase, or, you know, people, you know, might say that if you're reverse dieting, whatever, you know, terminology you want to put around it, but I can notice a big difference in, in my energy levels and in, in how I'm moving. And, and sometimes when I'm having more calories, and granted, the food that I'm eating, isn't processed junk, which is a, a big part of it, and and it's right. not loaded with a, a bunch of things that are trying to satiate us and could you know mess with our you know gut mucosal lining as well, which goes into the brain and um, all that sort of stuff. There, there was a great talk about um, a guy did a talk on um, what happens with the emulsifiers and the food and your gut mucosal lining. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that at all. Um, what was it? It, was a, it was a Harvard professor at Stanford? Uh, I can't remember. It was really it was really good. Um, but, quite interesting, what happens with the food that we're intaking. so uh, you're you're quite right on that. So, where do you see the future of health going, and where do you hope it to go?
1: I think well, I hope it goes more towards the root causes of issues. I hope we stop focusing on demonizing just certain things and we look at like the overall picture and just go back to like what used to work you know, for our grandparents, getting sunlight, eating real food, exercising, not fearing calorie, understanding that food is fuel and we need that, um, and focusing more to on like optimal what's optimal versus like, what's just survivable, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a a very statement. So what are the things that you feel like people are are lacking right now that they could just do, like you mentioned, getting sunlight, exercising more? Is there anything in their day is somebody's listening to this and, and often, you know, they'll listen to a podcast where an expert such as yourself, like, Oh, I gotta do this, and I gotta have this and I gotta eat the liver and you know, and and it just becomes overwhelming for them. So what are some tangible action items that they can do in the day just to make themselves feel better and look better?
1: Yeah, the, I mean, the easiest way that people can regain a lot of their health is to simply go through their kitchen cabinet and throw out all the junk food. Um, it's right, Half the battle is basically stopping consuming the toxic stuff that you're putting in your body. Um, so that's the quickest thing people can do. If they want to switch over from you know regular grain finished meat to grass-fed meat, great, I think that will have benefits. Um, conventional eggs to pastured eggs. I think that will have a lot of benefits if you can afford it. If not, um, you know, it is what it is. So, you know, small switches and changes can can make a dramatic improvement in your health. Perfect. Dr. James, where can people find you? So my website is uh, drjamesdenick, D-I-N-I-C dot com, or my Twitter Instagram is at Dinick.
0: Amazing. I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you coming on and everything that you're doing. I've been following you for uh, a long time. I truly appreciate it. And everybody listening, this was another episode of the Fatter or Future Podcast. Remember, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. Everybody laughs when I say that. <laughs> Cheers. That was a salty podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Sometimes I make myself laugh. Hello, self. Yes, self. You're entertaining. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. James, for coming on. That was a plethora of information. I truly appreciate it. All of your knowledge and taking the time. You're a busy guy. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. I've been following Dr. James for quite some time, and I'm honored to have him on, just like every guest that I have on the podcast. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe, if you haven't, at the Fatter Future podcast, iTunes, everywhere else it's available. Write a five-star written review would be amazing. Make sure to follow me on all social media channels at Joey Thurman Fit. And if you want a free workout program for two weeks, check out my program, Fast Results, openfit.com forward slash Joey. Two-week trial. It's amazing. All bodyweight exercises and mini bands, all less than 20 minutes long. You're welcome, by the way. I will see you next week for another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. Remember, don't be a fatty. F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of of the future. Cheers.